I began this conference, <clears throat> and um, by the way, all of the conference messages are online. They're, they're, they're podcasts on iTunes. You can just go to iTunes and search, go to the Bluegrass Conference, and they've been posted. Uh, but I began the first talk, the first talk of the conference by sharing um, the story of my own personal breakdown and season of deep anxiety. I am, I am not going to rehash that. You can go listen to that. I'm not going to rehash that ever again in a sermon. So uh, it's online. I can point you to it. I'm not going through that again. Um, but I said in that one of the most important lessons I learned from that experience is the power of relatability. Um, when I was in my darkest hour, and they were dark hours, the thing that brought me most comfort was fellowshipping with someone who had been through what I had been through. There was a season where that's the only people I wanted to talk to. Just find me someone who's been here that I can sit down with and share with them my crazy thoughts that I knew were crazy, but I couldn't stop thinking them. To share with them the physical symptoms of my panic, these feelings of hopelessness and dread. To just sit with someone who knew exactly what I was experiencing and could just simply say to me, yeah, I, I know exactly what that's like. I've been there. And conversely, during that season, what I discovered is that nothing was less comforting than to have someone well-meaning, well-meaning, though they may be, to have someone try to counsel me who had no idea what it was like, no idea what I was experiencing. Their well-intended words always felt so shallow, so empty, so void of true hope, at times even patronizing to my struggle, because they simply just didn't know what it was like. Well, do you know what I just offered us in the passage that I read? A God, it's an amazing thought, a God who knows what it's like. When the prophet Isaiah, as Mark read, when the prophet Isaiah promised that the Savior would be acquainted with grief, that wasn't metaphorical. That wasn't he will be acquainted with grief in the way we get acquainted with the grief of the film of the characters in the films that we see. It was he actually will know our grief. And that is what we're going to spend some time meditating on this morning. I have three thoughts for us from this moving scene. Jesus is acquainted with depression and anxiety. Jesus is acquainted with loneliness, and Jesus is acquainted with unanswered prayer. Let's go through each of these. First, Jesus is acquainted with depression and anxiety. This is going to stretch your doctrine of the humanity of Jesus. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
Now, it is obvious that Mark is trying to communicate something different is going on here with Jesus. Something we have not seen. He has faced down so many things and there has always been this peaceful confidence and courage in the face of demons, in the face of death, in the face of storms, in the face of um, religious um, attacks from the Pharisees. He's just always been cool and confident. And here he's saying, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I'm scared to death. The wording here is very unique. The ESV translates it as best it can with this language of greatly distressed and troubled, sorrowful even to death. These are attempts to convey unique Greek wording here. Simply put, something different is happening to Jesus. Luke's account, you know this, famously includes the detail that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, which is a condition that can happen when someone is experiencing extreme panic and stress and pressure. Greatly distressed and troubled, sorrowful even unto death, sweating blood. Do you know what is happening here? Jesus is having a panic attack. You want to talk about testing our doctrine of the humanity of Jesus. We say that Jesus is fully human. But is there room in our visions of his humanity for him to have a nervous breakdown? Because that's what's happening here. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to be precise with my doctrine so as to not dishonor my Lord. He was, of course, without sin. But to be without sin does not mean that he, is, he did not suffer the consequences of the fall. His body... His humanity, including his mind and his emotions, was susceptible to brokenness. Now, he never responded to that brokenness in sinful ways like we do. But without a doubt, Jesus fully knew what it was like to be a human living under the curse of a fallen world. We've seen him be hungry. We've seen him be tired. We've seen him cry. And now we are seeing him in the depths of human despair. To those of you who have had breakdowns, who have been to the bottom of depression and anxiety, isn't it just amazing that Jesus knows what that feels like? Just that simple truth. You know how you try, you know how you try to explain to people who've never experienced it, And you try as best you can, but you simply can't give language to what it's like. Isn't it amazing that you don't have to explain it to the very God you serve? In fact, I'll take it a step further. As much as you hate your depression and anxiety, as much as you want it gone, when you see Jesus going through it, is there a little part of you that says... I'm glad I'm able to share that with Jesus. All of these stable people don't get to share that with Jesus. He and I are going to get to laugh with redeemed. When I'm fully redeemed and, and, and my body is redeemed, we're going to get to laugh about our panic attacks someday. And it will be like a little inside joke that all you normal people who I envied for so long, you're not going to be able to understand what we're talking about. 
this familiarity with the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus is acquainted with the symptoms of depression, of anxiety. Secondly, Jesus is acquainted with loneliness. Verse 34, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, and not as I will, you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, his best friend, Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again, he came back and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. Oh, your eyes are heavy. <laughs> their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. They didn't know how to respond. He came a third time and said, you're still asleep. Taking your nap. We focused a lot over the past few weeks about the betrayal of Jesus, Judas's betrayal. But what we tend to forget is that Jesus was abandoned by all of his disciples. Of course, when his arrest and execution um, goes down, they all abandon him. But even now, we see him all alone. And he confides in them. He's... I think what stings the most in this passage, I think what's so tough to read in this passage is the fact that these are his best friends. That little detail, it's, it's really heartbreaking. He's in his darkest hour. He feels the anxiety and panic building. And he essentially says, I need my boys. I need my best friends. Peter, James, John, I want you to come with me. And he confides in them. He says, guys, I'm overwhelmed. He's very vulnerable with his weakness. Literally saying, I'm scared to death. I am sorrowful even unto death. Will you just be here with me? Can I ask my friends to sit, to keep watch, to pray for me? And in his darkest hour, they fall asleep. He wakes them up. You fell asleep? After all I've done... One hour, Peter, one hour. Please, I need you to be here with me in this moment. Pray with me, watch. Prays again, comes back, they're asleep again. Wakes them up, prays again, comes back, and they're asleep again. How much would that sting? The first night of our conference when I shared my story, I shared how invaluable community was to me in my darkest hour. I completely leaned on my closest friends. I mean, they carried me. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if I cried out to them. If I said, guys, I am overwhelmed. I am scared to death. And they responded with indifference and apathy. Completely uninterested and unsympathetic. You want to talk about compounding depression. And yet here is Jesus, frantic, asking his closest friends, could you just be with me? Watch and pray. And they yawn at him. Jesus doesn't just know what depression feels like. 
Jesus knows what it feels like to be alone in it. But it gets even worse. Last thing we see here, and by far the most shocking thing we see here, is that Jesus is acquainted with unanswered prayer. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There is one recorded prayer. We're told in Mark that Jesus goes to pray, but there's one recorded prayer from the lips of Jesus in the entire gospel of Mark, and that one prayer goes unanswered. Technically, that isn't true. It doesn't go unanswered. The answer is no. Once again, I want to be precise with my doctrine here, okay? We see that Jesus is clearly still devoted to Trinitarian submission. He is completely submissive to the perfect will of the Father. Not what I will, but what you will. But in panic, he does cry out. He does plead in this mysterious Trinitarian moment. All things are possible for you, Father. Remove this cup from me. I think that all things are possible for you is what is really hauntingly familiar for the suffering, isn't it? I know you can do this, God. You're God. You can do anything. Please, Father, please take this cup from me. The cup he speaks of there is the metaphorical bitter wine of God's justice, wrath, anger, displeasure. Everything that sin and sinners deserve is bound up in this cup. And Jesus knows the plan. The plan is for him to drink it down. And he is literally crying out as a son to a father, please, you're God, you can do anything. Let there be another way. There has never been a more sin. There has never been a more desperate prayer prayed. And there has never been someone more loved by the Father praying the prayer. And yet the answer is no. The most sincere prayer ever prayed by the most beloved person ever praying. And the answer was no. I will not remove this cup. It is your destiny. Have you cried out to God with the most passionate, the most earnest prayer for him to remove your cup, your depression, your loneliness, your disease, whatever it may be, again and again? I love that Jesus prayed it three times. Isn't that, isn't that familiar? Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not, not as I will, you, you will answer. Let's try that again. Lord, is this possible? Said He said the same words. Lord, is this possible? Answer, let's try that again. I love that he prayed it three times. Because we, again and again and again and again, God removed this. And again and again and again, the answer from on high can be no. If that's you, you're in good company. Jesus knows exactly what it is like to cry out to the heavens with the most heartfelt plea and have heaven respond with a heartfelt no. He took the news better than you. 
He he took the news better than I do. Not my will, yours be done. Humble submission, sinless response to the good and perfect will of the Father, even when the Father's will disappoints. Jesus takes the news better than we do. But yes, he knows exactly what it's like to have your cries to God go unanswered, or at least answered in a different way than you want. Jesus is acquainted with what it feels like to be depressed and anxious. Jesus is acquainted with loneliness in that depression and anxiety. And Jesus is acquainted with what it is like to cry out for God to remove that which has brought about the depression and anxiety and for God to say no. He is a man of sorrows and he is acquainted with grief. And I want to close by helping us see why that matters. And I want these applications to serve as a closure to the whole conference. If I were to wrap this whole thing up, it would be these applications from this text. Why does it matter that what we have is a Savior who is acquainted with grief? I have two applications that we all need to hear, especially for those of us who have been just under the the heaviness of this week. We all need to hear these two applications. What this means for us is that we now have a God who knows our suffering and we now have a God who can undo our suffering. Why is it important to have a God who knows our suffering? Well, it goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning, the power of relatability. If indeed he is going to be the wonderful counselor, if indeed he is going to be our comfort and our strength, if indeed he's going to be our ever-present help in a time of trouble, then it matters that he knows what it's like. The utterly unique consolation that Christians alone can proclaim is a God who can relate. In pastoral ministry, I find myself constantly placed in situations where I am expected to bring a measure of comfort to a grief that I cannot understand. It's a, it's a routine for me. And it's overwhelming. And yet being a minister in the name of Jesus allows me to offer a unique consolation to that situation. And it's this. I can't imagine, but God can. I don't know what this is like, but your Savior knows exactly what this is like. You are not alone in your grief. Now, I suppose you could say, and if you're um, maybe in the heat of it and angry a little bit right now and it's raw a little bit, then the cynical part of you will want to say this. Well, Jesus never experienced what I experienced. Never lost a child. He never was wounded by a spouse the way I've been hurt. Never divorced. Never lived with a cancer diagnosis. He never lost a job and couldn't provide for his family. Jesus doesn't know what that's like. And these things are true, but you're missing the point. What we can say is this. There is no degree of suffering that he is unfamiliar with. Perhaps he has never endured all the specific pains of a fallen, broken world, all the unique sufferings that we go through, but he has endured the greatest suffering 
of the fallen, broken world. He has endured more suffering than you will ever know. Now, why, why is he so scared in the garden? Other people have been arrested. Other people have been tortured. Other people have been executed. Much braver than this. We love those stories. We love these stories of people valiantly dying a martyr's death. Are they more courageous than the Savior that they're dying for? Why is he so overwhelmed in our passage? I mean, I get that it's not going to be pleasant. But sorrow unto death? The answer, of course, is that it's not his arrest. It's not his flogging or even his crucifixion. The answer is the cup. He's saying, let this cup pass from me. That cup represents your greatest nightmare. Not depression, not disease, not even death, not the devil. That cup is filled with hell. And Jesus is about to drink down every last drop. Which means there is no degree of suffering he does not understand. When it comes, this is very important. When it comes to the amount of suffering, Jesus suffers alone. And in this way, none of his children will ever have to suffer alone. Say it another way. Nobody, nobody can say to Jesus, I know what that's like. But now Jesus can say to every single one of us, no matter the grief, no matter how intense it is, I know what that's like. Jesus is alone in his suffering so that none but him would ever have to be alone in their suffering. We now have a God who can offer us the consolation of his own relatability. But it's more than that. The power of relatability is comforting, but what we really want is the power of redemption. And ultimately, this is what our Savior has come to do. Listen, Jesus did not come to die. Jesus came to rise. He did not come just to experience the world's greatest suffering. He came to undo the world's greatest suffering. In other words, the Father doesn't deny the Son's request in the garden here. Merely so that God can say to you, I know what it's like. That's a wonderful consolation that God can now say that to us. I can relate to your suffering. But there's more than that. The father denies the son's request in the garden so that God can say to us, it's not just that I can relate to your suffering, I'm going to undo your suffering. And it has to be this way. Again, there are sufferings that you have experienced that Jesus did not, but there's no degree of suffering as great as this cup. And the point is this. If God is able to undo that, then what can he not undo? If God can redeem the cross, then please pray tell what is irredeemable. If God can on Easter morning make Calvary new, then what can he not make new? The answer is nothing. If God can make Calvary new, then he can and will make all things new. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. 
He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Jesus is acquainted with our grief that we might be acquainted with his feast. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only can say to us in this moment, I know what it's like. You can say to us soon and very soon, we will know what it's like. We will know resurrection. We will know all things new. You relate to us in our suffering so that we can know and relate to you in your glory. Hasten the day that was promised to us in your resurrection. It was the dawn of a new world. We pray that you would usher in that new world where we will weep no more. Thank you for the promise that you will do just that. I pray we would leave in that hope. Amen.